0: Gospel. We'll look at chapter 1, verses 6 through 13 this morning. It's our second week in John's Gospel. Um, uh, The text is also printed for you in the bulletin. So I think we all know um, the classic line, whether we've used it or whether we've been the victim of it or whether we've just seen it on bad TV, the classic line uh, when a boyfriend or girlfriend is getting dumped and it's uh, the line is, "It isn't you, it's me." Right? It isn't you, it's me. Don't take it personally. Right? Um, you can sense that there's some dishonesty in a breakup like that. Uh, somebody's afraid to say it like it is because they'll, they'll afraid they're they're afraid that they're going to come across as um, as mean or petty or something, but. Um, Don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. Come on. Don't take it personally. Get in touch with reality. It's impossible not to take such a thing personally. And it really would be inappropriate to do otherwise, to not take it personally when somebody is rejecting you. Um, One of the deepest theological truths is that all of life is about relationships. Life doesn't transcend relationships. Life is relationships, which means that everything is personal. Everything is personal with ultimate reference to God himself. Um, Your whole life, every part of it, every little bit and the whole of it altogether is ultimately either oriented toward God or on a trajectory away from God. And this is intimately personal, all of life is personal, and you should take it personally, right? God does. Um, Rejecting Christianity, then, as we're talking about Christianity, you need to have a good understanding of what Christianity is. Rejecting Christianity is not just refusing an idea. It's not just refusing to adopt a certain set of beliefs. It's refusing Jesus Christ. That's what it is to, to reject Christianity, is refusing a person, his person, That is understandably hard news to take, as I know you never meant to offend anyone. Uh, Let me just acknowledge that. Some don't know what they're rejecting. Some don't know the one. Some don't know whom they're rejecting, right? Some just have a deep prior commitment to their own self-sufficiency that remains unexamined. Some think that they actually do accept God. They receive God. Uh, when really they're, they're deluded about it, they're self-deceived about it. So actually doing business with Jesus means um, being confronted with reality. And the, you've only got to two alternatives. The only alternative to rejecting him is welcoming and submitting to him personally. And that's what we're all doing uh, all the time, really, because all of life is and should be about relationship relationship with God. You've got those two alternatives, rejecting or receiving. Right? And um, so you're going to need to take it personally. Uh, let me pray, and we'll talk about this more as we read the Scripture. <clears throat> Father, you have sent your Son into the world to reveal yourself to us. We pray that that w- uh, would be a serious notion as we consider your word As we look at Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done, what it means for us, we pray that we would um, not be able to escape an actual personal confrontation with you, but that we would find ourselves caught up in a relationship with you that is restored as we listen to the gospel. We pray for your Spirit's help to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, So it starts off with a little bit about John, and when you think about the, the fact that the prologue, or some people call it the overture, to John's gospel is so profound and so well-written, and there's this little strange bit in there about John the Baptist. Like, why is that in there? Because he's just going to go on from here, like right after this prologue, and he's going to tell us more about John the Baptist, so he could have waited till then. I mean, the prologue's about Jesus, right? Um, what's John the Baptist doing in there? Well, Jesus said about John the Baptist, not the author of the the gospel of John, but John the Baptist, Jesus said that among those born of women, none is greater than John. He's basically the, the greatest man who's ever lived until now, Jesus said of John. And his life served a single purpose. You know that meme that goes around, you had one job, right? He had one job. His life served a single purpose, to exalt Jesus Christ for our salvation. To point out Jesus Christ and to help people prepare themselves to receive him as the Lord. So here you have the greatest man in the history of the world, the greatest man. Think about what it means, what in your mind success and greatness mean. (laughs) Uh, the, The kind of applause that he receives from Jesus. The greatest man in the history of the world aside from Jesus, of course. And the whole point of his life was to point to somebody else, to bear witness, to testify. Um, and just for your information, that word to, to testify or bear witness is, uh, is also the word for martyr. Um, but the whole point of his life was to bear witness to Christ, the greatest life, the greatest privilege that anyone ever enjoyed is to live as a sign pointing to Jesus Christ, not oriented on himself. And not just oriented for himself on Christ, but seeking to reorient others also on Christ. That's the greatest life anyone ever lived. He says um, later uh, in his life and ministry, he talks about Jesus, he says, he must increase, I must decrease. So his was a preparatory work to introduce people to Jesus, and and he met with a lot of resistance. I mean, that's kind of putting it mildly. He met with some resistance. Why? How does John's life testify to Jesus? How does John's ministry testify to Jesus? What's the big sign? When you look at John the Baptist, and you look at his whole life and everything you know about him and the, the outcome of his life, what he was doing and the way people reacted to him. You look at John the Baptist as this big sign marker. What what is it pointing to? What, What does it say about Jesus? What's the big sign that stands over his whole life that points to Jesus? I think it's a sign of opposition for the sake of love. He's always telling people to repent, right? Stop doing what you're doing. It's not right, right? He's, he's, he's offering opposition to people, but he's doing it for the sake of love. He's doing it for the sake of their salvation. John preached what nobody wanted to hear. Nobody wanted to hear it, but he did it because it was good for them. Right? But, uh, but people didn't hear the it's good for you part. Uh, they, they didn't like John. They couldn't bear what he had to say to them. But that means they just—they heard him partially. They heard him without fully understanding his message. They got caught up on the opposition part, the part where he's against me and against what I've been doing, right? They hear that opposition part without the love part, and that was their reaction to Jesus too. And that's how, in a lot of ways, John is kind of a precursor and a pointer, and his life and ministry direct us and give us a, a, some kind of inkling about what Jesus is like and what, what he will be like, right? Um, because the response that people had to John the Baptist, they had to, to Jesus too, uh, only amplified. It says in verse 9 that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. These people who've been prepared for hundreds of years by interactions with God and through the scriptures, they've been prepared to receive the Messiah, they didn't receive him. He came to his own people. They didn't receive him. And uh, I guess there's a parallel here with, um, with Star Wars. It should be obvious to all of us. Um, when Luke... Luke is just this kind of pipsqueak, immature kid, but he discovers that he's, he's kind of special, right? He discovers he's special and learns that well, he has to go and, uh, and study under the master, right? He needs direction. He can't just be special and achieve full potential on his own. He's got to go to Yoda. He's got to go to Dagobah, the swamp planet, and he's got to meet with Yoda, and he's looking for him. He, he finds him. He's got a picture of what Yoda should be like. He's got a picture in his mind of what the master should be like. And uh, when he sees this Yoda, he's completely unrecognizable to him because he doesn't at all fit the picture in his mind. And he kept getting frustrated with him. And he kept getting upset with the master Uh, because he didn't understand. Like what the master had to teach him was beyond him, right? He needed to learn from this guy, and he actually kind of wasn't willing to learn from him at first. He didn't accept that the master knew what was good and right because it didn't fit his categories and didn't seem to serve his purposes. He's got preconceptions of what a master should teach him, what he should be like, and he's got purposes that he thinks this training should look like it's actually serving these purposes. Right? Um, <clears throat> and the same dynamic stands as an indictment against us. Jesus comes into the world, Jesus comes into our lives, he doesn't fit our categories, he doesn't seem to serve our purposes, and so we kind of get frustrated. And we really get frustrated. Uh, and it's, it's us. We're the ones that do that. It's not them out there. right? It's us in here. That's the indictment that stands. He came to his own people, so you can't think that being counted among his own people kind of gives you an exemption from this dynamic. right? If anything, maybe we're more susceptible to this dynamic because... It's easy for us to think that, you know, we're special in and of ourselves and um, being his people, really, uh, we're safe, right? We, we, people in this room, people who've been Christians for decades, we frequently presume to understand God. We presume to understand him. We trust our conception of him rather than actually trusting him. We're convinced that he should fit our categories and serve our purposes and we're absolutely opposed to any other version of God encroaching on our categories and purposes even if it happens to be the real God, (laughs) maybe especially if it's the real God. Um, We imagine life will go well if I'm a good person, a kind person, a moral or religious person. I mean, that's in the back of our minds. We operate that way all the time. If I do well, things will go well, right? The assumption is that's how God has set it up. He is happy with me. When I'm good, I can't really rest assured if I'm not being good. That's what also is going on in the back of our minds. So we pursue a life, we try to set up for ourselves a life that we can manage so that we can feel that way, so we can live as if This is the way God is and the way that he wants life to be for us. We pursue manageable benchmarks. We pursue manageable guidelines, sort of scaffolding for life, imagining that, you know, it's about accomplishing righteousness. And this this feeling of righteousness actually is righteousness. It must be righteousness, and it must be God's pleasure. That's, That's when God is really happy with us because that's what God is like. He's really happy with righteous people. Isn't he? And that's how the Jews thought, right? The Jews, especially in Jesus' day, this is kind of what it means that he's the light coming into the world. Uh, he shines a light on the Jews, on what's in their hearts. And it's not, I'm not just kind of throwing one nationality under the bus. Uh, these were God's own people, and they didn't understand him. They didn't receive him. right? The people of Israel, the, the Pharisees, ended up gnashing their teeth at God because they thought it should be this way and then Jesus comes saying, nope, totally wrong, right? And you need to take that seriously and you need to take it personally, right? We think, not just the Jews back then, we think these things. We think that life and relationships and work and church are about living up to certain expectations, that people have for us or that we imagine they have for us or that we have for ourselves that we imagine God has for us, right? Life, work, people, relationships, everything is about living up to certain expectations because if if others are impressed with me or at least I'm you know, somewhat justified in, in imagining that others are impressed with, with me, uh, then God will be impressed with me and everything will be okay and I can feel okay. Right. Um, we want to set up our kids for the same kind of success. We want to give them the best education, we want to give them all the career opportunities they could, they could want, we want to make sure they're set up to get a really good spouse, uh, and that they're just, in general, a wholesome, virtuous person, right? Because we equate these things, success in these ways, with success in God's sight. We, we equate these things with blessing, And with God's pleasure, as if God couldn't possibly be delighted with them or with us if they or we were actually sinners. If we actually just screwed it up all the time, did it wrong, had a wrong conception of God, and if our kids did too, it's not going to go well for them. God wouldn't be pleased with that. We believe that God is the kind of God who loves our self sufficiency. Our self-sufficiency. If we have our lives together, of course he's for that. Come on, it's just sensible. Of course he's for that. And prayer often amounts to, would you please help me to get my life together so that I can stop asking you to help me, (laughs) right? Uh, uh, But really, that's the prayer of someone who wants to be apart from God. That's what that is. It's the prayer of somebody who wants to be apart from God. Uh, my mom, among um, other mortifying stories of me that she likes to tell of my childhood, uh, this is not so bad. She always says, you know, my first words were, um, I do it myself, right? Somebody wants to help me. Somebody wants to help feed me or do, do something for me, help me use a potty or something. <laughs> I do it myself. I just refuse. I do it myself, right? Right. Um, So it's in us from a very early age. (laughs) First words, being satisfied with your own self-sufficiency is the God-avoidance plan. Being satisfied with self-sufficiency, I do it myself. I can feel good about it. That's the God-avoidance plan. That's the relationship-avoidance plan. Um, Flannery O'Connor said in one of her novels that there's a deep, black, wordless conviction in us, wordless so you're probably not aware of it you haven't expressed it, you haven't said it out loud but it's a deep black wordless conviction in us that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin if you don't need Jesus you don't need God's mercy um, then you won't have to be in relationship with him if you want to avoid him, you do what's right so you don't have to ask forgiveness anymore you do it yourself And imagine that God's pleased with you and imagine that you can be pleased with yourself. But that's like jamming your eyes shut in broad daylight. Jamming your eyes shut, refusing to open them, insisting that you can see perfectly well in the dark without any light, so somebody please shut off the lights. You should take that personally. God takes it personally. We think... That God is happy to make us strong in ourselves and independent of him? That he'll help us to be able to pull our lives together so we don't need him anymore? We think that's what makes, makes God happy? What God is really after is our childlike dependence on him. Childlike. That means constant for every little thing. Right? Childlike dependence on him is what God is after And it's something that even his own children forget more often than not. Right? We forget it. And Jesus comes into the world, and he sheds light on all this. He lights up everything in your life. He lights up everything in your thoughts about God. When Jesus comes on the scene, we stand exposed. Nowhere is safe from him. Nothing is hidden from him. And when he comes into the world and into your life, it shows up, all the cracks and all the faults and all the spidery holes. Because he calls it like he sees it. He sees it very well. And you have to do the same. You have to call your self-righteousness what it is. You have to do that. If you haven't come to grips with that, it's in you and you need to come to grips with it. You've got to call it what it is. You have to call your avoidance of God, your rebellion, what it is. Um, God said in Isaiah, in his prophecy in chapter 1, <clears throat> uh, this is a quote on the front page of the bulletin, "'Children I have reared and brought up.'" Children. He's talking about his people, Israel. He's, he's brought them into his family. He's saved them for a relationship with himself. Uh, a relationship where they're supposed to be dependent on him and get to know him, like a child loves to get to know its father. Children I have reared and and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So Israel is the big illustration that runs through all the scriptures on how not to do life with God. Pretty much two-thirds of the Bible, how not to do life with God. It's what we see in Israel. And it culminates when Jesus comes. They they had fooled themselves into thinking that God was okay with them, and they could feel okay. God was okay with them because they were good, because there was something special about them, or at least that if they had kind of lost God's favor, they could return to God's favor if they kind of cleaned up their act a bit and, and kept his rules better. That's the way they imagined life with God, but God said that this amounted to their not knowing him, not understanding him, not really. It amounts to rejecting him, actually, and not living with him. And when Jesus came, he met the strongest opposition, he met the strongest opposition from those who claimed to know God best. It's from those who claim to know God, who claim to teach other people what God was like. When God comes on the scene, he receives the strongest opposition from them. Here's God right in front of them, offending and overthrowing all of their sensibilities, proving that they had no clue what God was really like, proving that at at root, they really wanted nothing to do with God. And they couldn't stand the exposure. And it took them a while to work up the nerve, but when they... Just couldn't take God anymore. <laughs> the one they professed to know and teach. They killed him. Couldn't take him anymore. Uh, Jesus is the light that shows us the inescapable reality that in and of ourselves, innately in our nature, we are rejecters of God. That's what we do. We even reject the guy who just tells us about God. That's what happened to John the Baptist. It's what happens with a lot of missionaries and evangelists in the world. The guy who tells us about God. He made John the Baptist made his life a big sign pointing to Jesus, and he got beheaded for it. We did that. Human beings. We share all the capacities of the people who did that. We did that. That's what we're like. And yet, this is the gospel, after all, yet, Jesus is the light that shows us all reality. Not just about ourselves, but about God. He shows us the reality of what God is like. So in the face of hundreds of years of rejection, even thousands of years of rejection from his own people, In the face of that, knowing that when he came into the world, he would be despised and rejected by those who claimed to know him, by those who claimed to speak for God, he still came into the world and he still gave himself up for us. God came and he let the opposition rise to a crescendo. He came and stood against us for our good, because he loves us. He stands against our rebellion. He stands against our misconstruing of our rebellion, our misunderstanding, our self-delusion, our self-deception. He stands against that, the cloaking of our rebellion, our wrong conception of himself. He stands against all of that because he wants to give himself to us because that's really what's best for us. And it's when you see that in Jesus Christ, when you see that, that you feel safe to step into his light, exposing as it may be, awkward as it may be, uh, because ultimately it illuminates not just what's wrong with you, but everything that's great about the love of God. Right? Nowhere's safe from him, but the good news is that you're safe with him. Um, To all who did receive him, the text says. Who believed in his name or uh, believed into. That's kind of a word that's just like entrusting yourself, right? Who believed into his name or his person, really. Who entrusted themselves to Jesus. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood. Probably means like genetics, right? Uh, nor of the will of the flesh, um, nor of the will of man. And these things could mean different things about will or religion or maybe uh, desire, um, maybe even sexual desire in the the family, the procreation process. Kind of hard to nail these things down, but um, we're not born of any of those things but of God, of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We are children of God, born of God, um, so Frederick Brunner, commentator on John John's gospel, says that every believer's new birth, or regeneration, is in origin a veritable virgin birth, a birth given by another. So it's a spiritual rebirth. And this is kind of a hint at the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, which uh, John loves to talk about uh, Jesus' treat treatment on uh, the Holy Spirit, but it's a spiritual rebirth. We are entirely at God's mercy. If we're going to be children of God, if we're going to be welcome in his family, if we're going to have a relationship with him where it's one of mutual acceptance and not rejection, then we need to be reborn spiritually by God's mercy. And this is a source of tremendous encouragement because this is what Jesus came to make this ha- This is why he came, to, to make this happen, God is the kind of God who makes room for people like you. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what you've done. That's what he's like, to make room in his own house for people like you. He came into the world knowing the rejection he would face. He suffered ultimate rejection, betrayal, death, a cruel death, a torturous death. And in doing so, in facing that rejection, he secured our salvation. He demonstrated his love. And now, because of him, because of God, we have the great high privilege of being sons and daughters of God. Really knowing Him, and really being close to Him, and really sensing the importance that He places on us as His children—all is a free gift that we certainly didn't deserve. We're kind of clueless at best about what God is like, what God is doing, certainly didn't deserve him to do this for us. And yet he did, because that's what he's like. And now we have access to him. We have access to the, the one true God, and we have the full right of calling him our Father. You have the right to do that. That's what it says. Not because of who you are. Not because of what you've done, but because of his love for us, because that's what he's really like. The God who will do this—the whole thing was His plan. The whole thing was His idea. It came to light in Jesus Christ, and uh, as as the psalmist says in Psalm one nineteen, familiar words probably to us. Your Word—that's who we're, John's talking about here in his, his prologue or his overture, right? The Word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He is. The light. Jesus Christ is the light. He doesn't just show light to us, He is the light from God. It is His nature to illuminate reality for us. It is His nature to reveal what God is really like. That's what we talked about last week. Pretty deep theology when you think about it. But C.S. Lewis says this, I think this was in a lecture or paper that he wrote. Uh, not in one of his major books. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So maybe I'd offer a friendly amendment to that and say I believe in not, not just Christianity, I believe in Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ. I entrust myself to Christ. I believe in him. I know that he's real, not only because I see him but because by him I see clearly everything else. I see all of reality. I see God and the world that he's made and I see myself revealed because he is the light. He's the true light come from God. It's the freedom. This really is freedom. Maybe this idea just sounds terrible to you, this kind of getting in touch with your inner self-righteous rebel. Right, and knowing that that's what you're really like. And um, maybe that's hard for you, but it's, it's freedom. It's the freedom of the children of God to actually live in reality, the full reality of who God is and who we are, yet without despair, but with, with joy and confidence. Um, the happiest people that I know are those whose personal connection with Jesus Christ through very simple faith whose appreciation for the gift of being children of God frees them to look plainly at themselves square on in all honesty and still laugh that's the freedom of the children of God try as we might Reject him as long as we like. We didn't stop his love. We couldn't stop his love. Jesus shows us that. Do you believe that? Jesus exposes your opposition to him, and he does it for your good, because he loves you. So you should take that personally. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do need your Spirit's help Now and always, as we have been confronted by your word, a word that is very personal to us, we pray that you would help each one in this room to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that even if he opposes us in many ways, ultimately, he is for us, he's given himself for us because you love us and you're gracious to people like us. We pray that your grace would be the final word that stands over our lives that frees us up to live um, exposed in your light and yet pressing in further and further to that same light because it's where we find uh, the light of the gospel, the light of the truth of how good you are, what kind of God you're like. We want to draw near to Jesus because where else would we go for the words of life? Where else would we go in order to know you? We pray that you uh, would do the work that only you can do in overcoming our resistance with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.